Well, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 19. The book of Revelation is an amazing book. It's an amazing book because it isn't laid out in a linear fashion. And our Heavenly Father certainly knew we needed it laid out as it is as, through a series of visions which give to us varying perspectives on the same events. You may think, well, why? It seems an awful waste of space. Well, if there are any, and I know there are many parents that are in this room, I'm sure each one of you can attest that the lessons that you have sought to teach your children were rarely, if ever, learned after the first utterance but had to be repeated, to be reminded. And when we're dealing with things like the coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead, and we're going to be confronted with those terrible realities for those who would continue in disobedience to the Word of God, pursuing their sin, over the Savior that He has so lovingly sent in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it would be so easy to become overwhelmed by these things and to perhaps lose sight of that reality that is ours in Him. And so, as I mentioned this morning, how it was that our loving Savior stops, pauses, and gives to us these wonderful reminders of His reign. He also gives to us wonderful reminders of His power and reminds us that He is not a king hoping to be victorious, but a king who is victorious. So we're going to look this evening at Revelation 19. I'll be reading verses 11 to 21. So follow along, if you will, in your Bibles as I read these few verses. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, 
And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So this evening we'll be looking at three things. First, we'll be looking at this mighty conqueror that is here laid out before us and identifying this one who rides forth. Secondly, as this king rides forth, we'll be taking special note of those who follow behind him and the implications of the positioning of those who are laid out here in this portion of the Word. And then as I mentioned this morning, that Revelation is often a book that is set out with great contrasts, and we're going to see another one of those contrasts presented this evening. When, if you think back to what we looked at this morning, in that wedding supper of the Lamb, that's going to be contrasted this evening with another great feast, a great and terrible feast, that of the great supper of God. So let's look at these things here before us this evening. John again begins in this portion of the word by, by alerting us that heaven was opened. This is another one of those wonderful acts of our loving God when he draws back the curtains and he makes bare these things possessed within the heavenly realm. And there are several occasions throughout God's word that we see such actions of God taking place when the curtains of heaven are pulled back for our benefit, that we might more clearly understand what is going on before us. You may think back to Matthew chapter 3 where we have that account of the baptism of Christ, where there we see the heavens are pulled back and the, the Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove and lights upon Him. And that powerful voice of God booms forth, This is my Son. You see, these were all intended to be a comfort, to be reassuring, and to also bear testimony 
to the significance of that which had just taken place in that one who had just been baptized, the promised one of Israel, the Savior of God's people, has arrived. John the Baptist understood that. You remember, he said, this one who has just arrived is far greater than myself. I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. The importance of the heavens being separated. You remember we, we dealt this morning in our Sunday school hour with that, that reference to the event of Stephen's great testimony before those who later would stone him. And in that account, we have another opportunity to see that the curtains were drawn back and Stephen looked into heaven and there he saw his Savior. And he was given confidence. He already had great boldness, didn't he, in the way in which he had proclaimed the truth, the gospel of Christ to those who were seeking, to, seeking his life. And yet the significance of that loving expression of God in the midst of what would be the end of his life, God pulls those curtains back and he sees his Savior, that one whom he loves. And he could go confidently knowing into whose arms he was about to enter. We also saw earlier in the book of Revelation, heaven being opened. In Revelation chapter 4, after Christ has explained to the seven churches what would come to pass, how they would be challenged, the kinds of persecution they may face, the curtains of heaven are drawn back and the throne of God is seen. And we are reminded of that one who continues to sit upon that throne, who is in charge over all that has been created. But again, we would not despair in our frailties, though we may face any number and measure of difficulties and trials in this life. The importance of pulling back those curtains that we may see these things. Later on in Revelation 15 and verse 5, Again, we see those curtains of heaven drawn back in the opening of the sanctuary that we might understand where those bowls of wrath come from and their purpose as they would come forth by the messengers of God and be poured out upon the earth, upon the wicked, leading up to that great and last terrible day. Well, these are all intended to be an encouragement and were an encouragement for John as these curtains were pulled back and he could see more clearly these matters. And what is it that he sees when he looks into heaven? But he sees a white horse. And this is the second time in the book of Revelation that we have had this white horse and its rider before us. Back in Revelation 6, you may remember when that first seal was broken, the riders ride forth. The first of those four riders upon their horses was a rider upon a white horse. And he is described as one who both rides forth to conquer and is a conqueror. Those are important descriptions for us to be aware of as we read that. So again, we wouldn't mistake the rider of that horse. 
the rider of that white horse in those early chapters of Revelation is none other than Jesus Christ. He rides forth first. Why? He rides forth, that one that possesses that two-edged sword, that by his word he may build his church. He may conquer nations and kings and powers and authorities. He may come to the aid of those who are his people. And Christ knew we needed that reminder that though he is at the right hand of God today, he is not far off. He is not disinterested. But he is actively engaged even today as he utilizes his people, his church, as his heralds to do those things pictured in Revelation 6, verse 1 and 2. Revelation 6, verse 1 and 2. If you don't have that open before you, just read. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. What a beautiful picture. Well, here now God draws us back to that picture of the horse and the picture of that victorious rider. Why? Because we've come to the part of our story at the culmination of all of his work that he has now come fully victorious and is now about to carry out his final act to utterly destroy his enemies, to bring about that judgment. And so as we would look at this, we see many descriptors given of this one who rides so that we would not, again, be led astray and think this someone other than Jesus Christ himself. Well, how are we to know that? Well, look, if you will, in verse 11, what is the name that's given to that one who rides upon this horse? He is here given the name Faithful and True. This isn't the first time that we see this name given to the Lord. In fact, you can go back to Jeremiah. Back in Jeremiah 42, verse 5, where we read, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to the word. It's interesting that Jeremiah 42 passage, and then as we think about what it is we're about to encounter in Revelation 19, that calling upon the Lord to be a faithful and true witness, he is writing forth right now in the passage before us to do that very thing and to bring upon those who are walking not in according with his word the judgment. The judgment. He's called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and make wars. See descriptors of him here, as we saw in Revelation chapter 1, that help us again to know with, with sureness that this is none other than Jesus Christ himself that comes, the conqueror who rides forth. 
And it's interesting here, he is, he is shown here to have eyes that are like a flame of fire. These things often indicate his, his capability, his understanding, his capability to see and know. He knows far more than we do. We have limitations. But he sees even into the darkest recesses of our heart. So penetrating is his gaze. And this penetrating gaze, this, this knowledge of what makes us and, and, and we are comprised of, that knowledge is what allows him to then judge absolutely righteously and justly with no mistake. Parents, you know that oftentimes we're called to judge between our children. And you can probably think of many times where you thought you knew pretty well what that judgment should be, and later it becomes clear that I, I didn't understand quite as clearly as I thought I did. And sisters, one of the, the glorious traits of Christ is He doesn't make that mistake. He doesn't judge wrongly. He knows all the facts, not a portion of them. He's described here in and with His authority as that one who upon His head are many diadems. We would know He has authority over all the nations. He is victorious over all things. These are such important things for us to see and be reminded of. And yet, there are many things that we our finite selves as creatures cannot. Only Christ knows. And so we see that described here as he is described as having a name that no one else but himself knows. Again, in his laying out this picture as he does, we see the attentiveness of our Lord and Savior because in the descriptions that he uses, he is addressing our typical weaknesses, fears, and tendencies. And so he is bolstering us as he describes himself in this way that we might be confident of his people. Not self-confidence. There's only one in whom we may have absolute confidence. It's important that we are reminded of that because we don't know what tomorrow may bring. How we will be tested and tried. And how we may be reminded of our own frailties and weaknesses and inabilities. And in those times where we might be tempted to despair, our only confidence. Now he goes on and he is described here in verse 13 as one who is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And I found comfort in the fact that he is described as the one here who possesses a robe that has blood upon it. It speaks to us in several ways. First and foremost, it serves as a reminder of that first work that he has accomplished, that work of redemption, because that blood serves to remind us how it was 
that he was pleased to make us new, to cleanse us from our sin as his blood was spilt for us. But there's another thing I think that we may take from this image of Christ riding in a robe that is tinged in blood. And if you'll note within this passage, his are the only garments that are described of all the armies of heaven that have any blood upon them. Why is this an important reminder for us? I think it serves as a reminder as to who it is that actually does the battle. We are tasked as brothers and sisters in Christ to wield the Word of God, to proclaim Jesus Christ. And yet it isn't our persuasive speech. It isn't our cunning logic that will make us successful in that endeavor. It is that one who rode forth first, who prepares hearts and minds that when the gospel is proclaimed, they may hear and understand it and respond to it. You see, that one who has done the battle, that one who does the hard work, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And we're going to see that reinforced just a little bit later as we look at the formation of the armies. We move to the second point. As the king rides forth, as this victorious conqueror rides forth, we see that there is an army that is assembled behind him. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And so our first question may be, who make up this army? Is this the angelic host that is pictured here? I would say you have to go back to that passage that we were looking at this morning to have more clarity as to who this great army is. This great army that is behind Christ is none other than those he has adorned for the wedding of the Lamb. It is his people. Why? Because they're given the same outfits that he described for us and explained to us what that linen represented as the righteous acts of the saints. And so it is, it is the armies of God. It is that fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham, the assembled great crowd of witnesses, the saints that are following behind Christ who rides before them. This is an interesting, again, contrast in the book of Revelation. Earlier, we saw in the book of Revelation that after that, that I, I can't remember, I get this mixed up, sixth bowl was poured forth, that rather than understand the might and power of God, what do the wicked do? But they double down in their wickedness. And we see that the dragon and the beast send forth their messengers, their demonic messengers, in order to assemble an army. And they assemble all the wicked in that place that we know today as Armageddon. Little did they understand they were setting themselves up to be the recipient of 
Christ's conquering blows. But what a contrast between that evil leader, Satan, and our leader. You see, that that evil one positions his armies before him, kind of like we have seen over the years as a human shield. Why? Because Satan cares nothing for the image bearers of God. They're offensive to him. They're disposable. They're merely a means to an end, failed though it is. But what a contrast to what we see in our passage here. And the armies of heaven were arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, and were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Brothers and sisters, this should give us courage in the days that he's given us. That we don't ride forth before him. You know, when you're when you're timid about approaching a co-worker at work that you know is struggling and and needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that Christ goes before you. And you can rest confidently in that. But it's also, I think, another wonderful expansion upon that that image of the marriage of Christ to His church. That we see that chivalry is not dead. That we see our glorious husband going before His most precious bride to carry out fully what He had told them He would do. And so He leads forth. Why? Because He is a shepherd. That's what He does. We are His sheep. And that army is the army of saints. He does the battle. That is reiterated here when we see He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. I just find it fascinating. He is the active one. He is the one who does the work. He is the one that wages the battle. He is the one that possesses the sword. You don't read anything here about the armies of God being outfitted for war. They're in linen. I mean, how much confidence do you have to have in going into battle to be dressed in linen? Confidence Christ wants for you. That you can follow behind Him confidently, knowing that the hems of your robe will remain pristine and white in His righteous garment. It's a glorious reminder for us of our victorious King. Then it may seem a bit abrupt that the, the scene changes. And he enters into now this contrast between the marriage supper of the Lamb and now the great supper of God. And what a stark contrast it is. That wedding supper of the Lamb was a joyous occasion. It was bright, festive. Everyone was delighting in it. In that we saw, you know, the promises of God realized. All were happy. 
Men contrast this. I don't know if many of you kids draw pictures. Revelation lends itself to the drawing of pictures as you're listening to sermons. But what a contrast here to this great supper of God. Where what is it that receives invitations? You see, we are all the recipients of the invitations to the marriage supper of the Lamb if we're in Christ. Who gets the invitations to the great supper of God? The birds of carrion, the vultures. All of those disgusting birds that, that circle overhead looking for an easy meal. God says you're about to get an easy meal. Coming is the time in which you, you birds of carrion, will feast. And so he says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Will they be feasting on delicacies? Will they be feasting on wonderful desserts like we had last night? Hardly. Now here we see the cataclysmic effects of the judgment being carried out upon all the wicked. That those who had foolishly assembled themselves to make war against Christ now are left strewn across the battlefield. It was those who were confident in their power and authority as kings over nations. It's those who were confident in their riches. It's those who were confident in their, their economic successes. Those who were confident in themselves rather than understand their only confidence could be in Christ alone. And so they lay strewn across the battlefield. And these birds feast upon the flesh of kings and captains, flesh of mighty men, flesh of horses and their riders. But we also see, as we were reminded this morning, that our God is not a God of partiality. His concern is not only with those who were the leaders of these armies, the kings, but He says the great and the small, the slave and the free, all who continue in their sin and call not upon that One whom God so lovingly sent bring about forgiveness of sin and new life Jesus Christ and after a lengthy book dealing with our great enemy we finally see the end of him and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword. And it's interesting as we read about this, you know, this, this great devastation, and yet... It is an expression of the holiness and justice of God meted out as promised. And if you go later into the book of Revelation, you'll find that the result of this by all of God's people is worship, praising Him 
because that radiant bride that Christ has been preparing, whom He has gone before, now proceeds unencumbered. No longer are there any obstacles in her path because all of His enemies have been completely and utterly destroyed, done away with. That's a reason for praise. No more sin. No more Satan. No more deception. Merely dwelling with that one whom the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned to a few of you this morning I, when I was trying to think of what I should preach upon for a congregation. I haven't visited you in many, many years. I thought, well, this is a congregation that is facing the need for and, and waiting upon the arrival of that new building and seeking God's guidance for a pastor to lead you in the next chapter of your church's life. So likely a congregation that needs to hear a couple of encouraging messages that would remind them of our great Savior Jesus Christ, that they would be sustained in the days to come, that they would be confident in the great work that is before you. You have some elections that are coming up. And so we will be joining you from afar, praying for success in those things, and that God would pour out His blessing upon them. I had an opportunity to drive by your church this afternoon and see pictures of it and, and uh, pray that God will richly bless you and expand your ministry in this part of His kingdom. And I also have every confidence that in His good and perfect time, He will supply to you what you need one who will be well-suited to lead you, guide you, be faithful under shepherds to you in the days, months, and years to come. With Christ, as we Let's look to Him in prayer. Almighty God, again, we thank You. We thank You for these encouraging words that You have preserved for us, Your creatures. Oh Lord, You know our frailties, our weaknesses. You know how we may be given to fear. And yet, Lord, You put forth these glorious visions that we might be reminded that just as You first rode forth and were acknowledged to be a conqueror and one who would conquer, so You are today conquering. And as we gather as a body, we're reminded of that as we look around us and see the evidences of Your victory over sin as You have built for Yourself a church. And Lord, though we may face many trials and obstacles in the days and months and years to come, Lord, may we maintain our focus upon You who go before us, that we might serve faithfully, confidently, all to the glory of Your name. For we pray these things in Your name, that of Jesus Christ.